you remember the first time you really feared something or doubted something? Do you remember how old you were, where you were? I remember mine. I was 17 years old. 17 years old. Now, I had a lot of things going for me at 17. I had way more things going for me than I thought I had going for me at 17 years old. In my own words, I had a job and I had a car. A job and a car meant I could get wherever I wanted to go. It gave me some freedom and independence. The job gave me money so I could buy things, and those things together with the car also meant that I could date, which was exciting. But I remember one night as I was coming home from work, I hit the highway, and I had about a 10-mile stretch of open highway. There were no cars on the road at that time of night. And I had 10 clear miles of beautiful open highway between me and the exit that I would take to get off from my home. And being 17 years old, I thought what I think almost every 17-year-old boy thinks to himself, I wonder how fast I can go. <laughs> I wonder what this car can do. Now, I wasn't limited by the fact that I drove a Plymouth Sundance, which is a Dodge Shadow, which if you don't know what that is, it makes a Honda Civic look like a sports car. <laughs> I was going to go as fast as I possibly could. So I put my foot down on the accelerator. My heart started beating. The odometer started rising from 55 to 65. The adrenaline was flowing 75, 85, 95. I broke it. And the road in front of me was flying so quickly before me that all of a sudden, right then and there, I saw it, at least I think I saw it, the black and white car sitting out in the median. In that moment, I can't even describe the fear that crippled me and the doubt that was overwhelming me. I was a respected student at my school. I was a Christian. I came from a good home. I knew that if the cop caught me, I was going to be in huge trouble. I'd be paying fines I couldn't afford, explaining things to my parents that oh boy, I just didn't want to have those conversations. So I did, again, what anyone would do that was 17 years old or anyone. I just purely reacted, and I got out of there as quickly as I could. I took the next exit, and I went down the street. I found a corner where I had known that would make a good hiding place if I ever needed one. I hid behind the bushes and shrubs. I turned off all my lights in my car, and I sat in 10 minutes of crippling doubt and fear. Well, the doubt and fear of 17-year-old John Hur really pales in comparison with the doubt and fear that was overcoming the apostles here in our text. See, it had been three days, by counting, from the time and circumstances of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. From Friday night to Saturday evening was Sabbath, and so no business was going on. But then on Sunday afternoon was the earliest possible time, or from Saturday evening to Sunday afternoon, was the earliest possible time that the Jewish authorities could assemble and determine what it was they were going to do, not just about Christ, but about those known associates of this crucified outlaw, heretic, blasphemer. And so the disciples in these circumstances were absolutely crippled and paralyzed in fear, cowering in the corner of an unknown home somewhere in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. 
if they could just fast forward 60 or six weeks, 40 days later, they wouldn't recognize themselves in this state. What was about to transpire in their life was a filling and an empowerment of such joy and peace and direction and clarity from the resurrected Christ that 40 days later in the streets of Jerusalem, they would be publicly, freely, without any inhibition, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, it's these doubters and these fearful disciples in John 20 that Christ was going to use to launch the greatest movement that has ever affected human civilization, the church. They would grow from the 120 followers of Christ at Pentecost to the current population of professing believers today, which according to public statistics is that there are 2.6 billion Christians projected to be living on earth at the middle part of this year. 2.6 billion. See, they had no idea about what the trajectory of their life was going to hold, nor the influence or legacy that Christ was going to have on the world through them. But let's visit this morning the subjects of fear and of doubt. We all have our fears. We all have our doubts. But fear and doubt are great, um, are great starting points for Christ to do a wonderful work of producing His glory and grace among His people. Well, our passage begins on the evening of that day. This is Sunday evening, which is technically the beginning of Monday by Jewish reckoning. It's the first day of the week according to Gentile Greek reckoning of the accounts. The disciples have emerged together. Now, not all of them. We know that Thomas is not here in this first gathering of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And one by one, they are assembling into a home somewhere in Jerusalem. And we know from here in John 20, 20 and also elsewhere in Luke and in Mark, we have further circumstances of what this meeting looked like. You see, they were assembling and person by person, as they were gathering together, they were starting to share this amazing news of what was happening. See, one by one, Christ had been appearing to different eyewitnesses. He had appeared to Peter and to John. He had appeared to the Marys. He had appeared to two initially unnamed disciples, one of whom who was later named Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, who after that encounter with Christ had turned around and come back to Jerusalem, eight miles. He booked it back from Jerusalem. Not quite like speeding in central Ohio for 17-year-old John, but they made it back and they were giving their report to the disciples here gathering in um, John chapter 20. And it's at that moment, according to Luke's account, that after Cleopas and the other disciple give their report of what happened to them on the road to Emmaus, how when Christ took the bread and broke it at dinner before them, that their eyes were opened and they saw that it was Christ, it's at that moment, according to Luke's gospel, that Christ appeared in their midst. You see, the disciples were receiving news and news and news, and their hope was building and building and building. And right at the pinnacle of when their affections were hoping and yearning and longing for them to experience this collectively, bam, Christ appears, and He's in their midst. 
See, there's a great grace and a great peace and a great comfort that comes by experiencing the presence of Christ among the company of believers. And this is the first taste of goodness that Christ gives his church together, his assembly together, as they are meeting together there in that home. As they look and as they see him, Christ is clearly a physical body. He's a human person. But his body does not operate on the same principles that ours do. He's able to appear and disappear seemingly at will. But he's human. He's physical. He invites touch. In Luke 24, he says that he is hungry and asks for something to eat. He tastes something. This isn't some vision that they had or some collective uh, hallucination that they experienced. They encountered a physical being, a person that was Jesus Christ, who three days prior was crucified openly and publicly by the Romans. A stone was rolled over his tomb, and he was pronounced dead. Now, three days later, here he is, appearing and disappearing to them in their own presence. Christ doesn't just appear to them to comfort them and to raise them from their state of fear and concern. He also commissions them. He gives them something to do. Not just then in that moment, but for the rest of their life. He greets them twice in peace, saying, peace be with you when he sees them. And then he says again, peace be with you, showering them with peace. He shows who He is, showing them His hand and His side. Their hearts rejoice. And He moves to His commission saying, As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see, Christ is comforting them. He's assuring them. He's showering them with his peace. And also, he's inviting them to join with him in the work that he was doing up to this point in his public ministry and will be doing behind the scenes as he works in the hearts and lives of individuals that he is calling to himself. He's asking them now to be the public face of the church, living and embodying and sharing and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowering his disciples to serve on his behalf in the midst of the world in which he was sending them. I'll pause here. There's something about being given something to do that helps direct and focus our attentions. I have two four-year-old little daughters, and I've learned one of the tricks of a parent is sometimes you just give your kids something to do to keep them occupied. Now it helps, it certainly helps move things forward, but even little bite-sized tasks can help contribute to the whole work of what you're trying to do on any given morning to get yourself out the door. Christ is dignifying his disciples by giving them things to do, to work collectively and collaboratively together toward achieving the great glorious picture and process of what he is trying to do in time and space. And this is the gift that we have as members of the church and body of Christ to represent him, to bring his peace, to be the public face of the church 
in every context that we inhibit and embody, in our workplaces, in our homes, when you're getting your hair cut, when you're at HEB, wherever you are, you're representing Christ as His ambassadors in the world. Well, despite these dignifying blessings that Christ showers on the church, there is one in the midst of the congregation who, or in the midst of the disciples, who is not with them that day, and that's Thomas. Thomas did not share the experiences of the disciples. Now, in a sense, Thomas is positioned, actually really well positioned, to believe the truths which they have experienced. He's their friend. They know him. He shared the public ministry of Christ for many years. Thomas, of anybody, is primed to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as the disciples come and meet with Thomas, they would be surprised that though they've been commissioned by Christ, their very first individual that they encounter does not demonstrate belief. In fact, he dictates the terms of his own belief back to them. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas's words here aren't necessarily exclusively a denial of Jesus's resurrection. They're firstly a denial of the testimony of the disciples and apostles themselves, who were his friends, likely the most reliable witnesses he could ever hope for. Those are the ones that he is initially firstly denying. And then as a product of that denial, he is also denying Christ. You see, I don't know all that's going on in Thomas's heart. I know that clearly in his mind, he probably missed something extraordinarily special that his friends experienced. He was not in their midst. Perhaps he wasn't in their midst because we know that Thomas is a pretty smart guy, and it's not wise if you are known associates and collaborators of a public enemy to assemble during the prime hours of arrest. So perhaps that was Thomas's part of his motivation to save himself and be away. Thomas also knew Christ. And if their testimony is true, I think it was something that Thomas himself would have wanted to experience. But like individuals that we experience and encounter, perhaps even like ourselves, Thomas throws up walls. He puts limits on his belief. Limits that I believe he doesn't think will actually occur in his lifetime. And he alienates himself, pulling himself back from the apostles, his friends, and peers. It's to this person that Christ turns and cares for. Christ heard the concerns and the doubts of Thomas. And one by one, he begins to teach Thomas a little something that we all need to know about and that's the subject of grace. One grace given to me those many years ago is that I was not found by the officer that I thought was searching for me. <laughs> here in our passage here, Thomas was found by the one who was seeking his soul. He was found by Christ. The circumstances repeat themselves. It's eight days later, and Thomas is with the disciples. Likely they'd been interacting with each other, chewing and thinking and trying to work back through this testimony that the disciples had received and Thomas was pushing back against. 
And the circumstances are similar. It seems like it's the same house. Again, the doors are locked. Again, Christ appears and stood in their midst and gives the same greeting. Now there's Thomas standing before the risen Lord who has given him the gift of what he has been looking for. Christ even turns to him and calls out almost clause by clause, word for word, what the uh, terms of Thomas's own belief were. He says, Thomas, look, see my hands. Put out your hand. Touch me. Place it in my side. Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. See, Christ cares about the skeptics. He hears your cries uttered both in the dark and heard against those who are his disciples. He appears to Thomas and blesses him here in these circumstances. He says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas's own response upon seeing the Lord is one of utter bewilderment. He recognizes the power of the one in whom he is standing and professes true faith, saying, O my Lord, O Lord of me, O God of me, you are my king. You have the right of my life. You are my Lord. You have formed me, and you are the center of my own being. Well, it's interesting, not only does Christ give him the power of his own personal presence, so also in the blessing, he gives him a gift that will sustain him and strengthen him and the church for every age. This was not the last time that Thomas would, in his physical body, see Christ. He sees him again several uh, chapters later when the disciples go out and depart and Christ reappears to them before Peter on the Sea of Galilee. He sees Christ again when um, Christ gives the, the formation of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. So also he sees Christ again at his ascension. At least three more times Thomas sees Christ. And you want to know what Thomas was thinking about in each of those occasions? I think he was thinking back to his doubts. Oh Lord, I once doubted you, never again, for you have blessed me once, twice, thrice, again and again. Not only is this a gift that's duplicated to Thomas in his life, but so also Thomas is given the opportunity through his own foolishness to use his own folly as a form of evangelism and outreach and communication to everyone that Christ would direct him to in his ministry. We know from history that Thomas would go from here to Arabia, Arabia eventually to India, and it's reported he even made his way to parts of western China. Everyone that he encountered from that point there on were individuals who would never see Christ. And yet Thomas's words for them are this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And this describes not just them, it also describes us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What blessings do we receive from that? Well, let's find out one day at a time, one week at a time, as we gather together in the company of Christ, as we remember his presence before us through the preaching of his word and through the sacrament, 
as we live out and embody the calling of Christ for us in our own places. Let's discover the blessings that come through knowing Christ, through trusting Christ, but on this side of eternity, not seeing him. For one day, friends, our faith will become sight. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the teaching of your word and through the inspiration of your word that has been given to us. Father, we ask this morning that you might continue to sustain us and strengthen us through the word and through sacrament. That, Father, that we might believe and know that your Son is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. In your Son's holy name we pray. Amen.